this is the in focus podcast from the hindu hello and welcome to the hindus in focus podcast with me amit barua your host for this episode china the world's factory is worried by its dipping population growth a figure that has fallen to its lowest level in 6 decades despite ending its 35 year one child policy in 2016 and replacing the two child policy with the three child policy last year just under 11 million babies were born in china in 2021 while a little over 10 million deaths were reported in the year gone by as a result china recorded a population growth of 0.34 per thousand the lowest since 1960 what are the implications of this obvious population crisis why aren't more children being born in china the country's aging population is better educated more skilled and healthier than before will the country be able to cope with lesser numbers to discuss all these issues i am joined by anand krishnan the hindus hong kong based china correspondent welcome to the in focus podcast anand thank you so much amit very happy to be joining you today anand please tell us why are young chinese couples opting to have fewer children Well, Amit, just to give our listeners a little bit of uh, context, uh, on Monday we had these numbers come out, uh, which, to be honest, weren't exactly a shock because all of us have been reading about uh, China's population and its aging problem, which is really not new. But I think what really came as something of a shock to people who were passing through the numbers that were put out by the National Bureau of Statistics in Beijing on January seventeenth was the speed of the decline. I think we all knew the trend, uh, but as you said in the introduction, what the numbers told us was in 2021 there were 10.62 million babies born in China, which might sound like a large number to anyone listening. But then, when you look at the fact that in the same period the number of deaths was 10.14 million, uh, so that's pretty much almost the same number of births and deaths. And uh, I mean, you, you and I know that the Chinese statistics. even chinese statisticians will tell you that they are to be taken with a grain of salt you had this very famous comment by current premier li keqiang when he was a provincial governor he told a us diplomat that statistics are for reference only his meaning was statistics in china show you a trend but they are sometimes massaged because the leadership doesn't want it to be as bad as it might be so if you sort of apply that uh, to the population numbers it's very possible that actually speaking the number of deaths in china may have for the first time already exceeded the number of births it's very possible and i know demographers were saying that it's very possible that china's population may have already peaked in 2021 this is at least 5 6 years earlier than what many people forecast so as i said i think the trend was something was expected but the speed of the trend uh, is something that is i think shocked the leadership and i think that's what's pushed them and we can talk about that more in terms of rolling out a big change in their family planning policies you mentioned that um, you know the uh, slowing uh, down of china's population had been underestimated uh, in fact a lancet study had predicted earlier that china's population could halve by 2100 but given these the recent trend uh, would this timeline maybe would it have to be advanced now I would say certainly so and of course as I said the problem is with numbers coming out of China we never quite know how accurate they are we know that with GDP numbers that they broadly given how open China is now compared to 
a few decades ago, it's impossible for them to completely fudge numbers. But what they can do is kind of massage numbers. We know that happens with GDP numbers too. So we don't quite know the, the actual extent of the, the decline. But one thing that I found interesting was uh, you had a once in 10 year census that came out in May 2021. And now that census in May had actually reignited this whole debate about China's aging because what the census told us was that Chinese population had added 12 million babies uh, that year in 2020. And what immediately followed the census was the announcement of a three child policy. And I think that as Yi Fuxian, who's a demographer, as he put it, he said, I think the reason why the Chinese leadership within two weeks of the census came up with this big announcement, as he put it, he said, maybe it's because the real population data is too scary. Even if they haven't published it, he said, it probably frightened the decision makers and had them roll out the three-child policy. The census, even the breakdown in terms of the age structure of the population was quite alarming. It said that people in the age group of 60 and above uh, was 264 million people. And that was almost up by 5.5% since 2010, the last 10 years. Those in the 15 to 59 age group, roughly the working uh, population was 894 million, down by almost 7% since 2010. So that's, I mean, we can come to the implications in a bit. So this is what you're seeing in the span of a decade. Uh, the huge sort of changes you're seeing in the structure of the population where the working age population is declining and those 60 and above uh, is going up, which of course creates all sorts of policy implications uh, for Chinese economy and for Chinese society as well. Is it the cost of living that is uh, preventing more children from being born in China? I think that's one reason that's come out in numerous surveys. You mentioned in your introduction about the easing of the family planning policies that we had already seen. All of us have heard about the one-child policy, but actually for almost two decades now, it actually wasn't a one-child policy. It applied only to maybe a third of the population who are living in cities. And actually China has allowed a large chunk of the rural population to have two children even before the recent relaxations. So in 2013, which is now nine years ago, they further relaxed the family planning policies because they were worried about the aging trend. And what they did say then was that couples could have two children if both the mother and father were only children. And that was a big relaxation at the time. And what they found after that was there wasn't really a huge change uh, in people's intent to have larger families. So in 2016, three years after that, came another relaxation where they completely abandoned the one-child policy and everybody could have two children. And yet again, the results were somewhat mixed. And then, of course, in 2021, you came up with a three-child policy. And it's quite interesting that they still haven't abandoned family planning. It's still a three-child policy. It's not that they've abandoned the entire system, this huge bureaucracy that's still in place to enforce it, to enforce fines and the like. There's a very interesting paper that came out in 2021 uh, that looked at the unintended consequences of relaxing birth quotas uh, by three economists uh, from China, from Zhejiang University in China. And what they found was very interesting, where they looked at the consequences of these changes that I just mentioned to you in allowing second child births. And what they found was there was an increase in second child births among more affluent families who are less sensitive to child-rearing costs. 
But at the same time, they found, this I found very interesting, was after the relaxation of the second child births, there was a decrease in first child births. And they attributed that to the fact that child rearing costs were going up. So that's, I think, comes to the heart of the issue. And even after the three child policy was announced, uh, there were surveys carried out by Chinese media, one by the Xinhua News Agency, uh, that asked 31,000 respondents who, whether they would have three children, out of which 28,000 said they wouldn't consider it at all. And there was one comment that came up on Chinese social media that I found very interesting, where someone replied to the announcement by saying, the reason I don't own three Rolls Royces is not because I don't want three Rolls Royces, but it's because I can't afford to buy them. Right. So, uh, I mean, I, I also see that some local governments in China are offering monthly cash subsidies to couples to have a second or a third child. Uh, how's that been? I mean, is this actually in place and is it working? I think it's a quite new uh, trend where in the last few months, I think towards the end of 2021, you had different provinces come up with their own rules. And some of them are quite actually mind boggling. I think in Beijing, in some districts, they were promising housing for people who had three children. And I think generally the, the reaction to people online wasn't that, oh, we're going to rush to have three children. They were like, well, you still have to deal with uh, the other sort of structural problems that people face, all kinds of costs. Just to give you a sense of how they are rolling out changes, I think one of the bigger changes uh, that we've seen is in terms of maternity leave, where in some provinces, again, I found it interesting that they haven't changed it for everyone, but they're giving different maternity leave allowances uh, if you have a third child. For instance, if you had a first child or second child, you would get like 158 days off. But if you have for your third child, you get 190 days. So these are kind of some of the changes that they're rolling out. Uh, there are financial incentives being rolled out in some provinces where they are offering money uh, to people as well as loans on, with preferential interest rates if you have bigger families or if you have three children. And there was one county in northern China that has even created an official uh, government database of singles uh, in the county uh, where so people could go and then find out who the singles were and government trying to play matchmaking. But I think all of these... Uh, I think kind of missed the point where I think fundamentally society has changed. Uh, and I think the mindset, unfortunately, hasn't changed. The mindset being the role of the government in social engineering. I think the belief that the government could play a role in social engineering was what led to the one-child policy. And it led to its disastrous legacy. And it's not just about a legacy of aging, which we're talking about now. There was huge a scale of rights violations for decades in China, especially in rural areas where people would have their second child forcibly aborted. They were forced sterilizations. There were unspeakable cruelties in the enforcement of the one-child policy. But the Communist Party can't publicly admit that. So even now, the official line in China is that the one-child policy worked for, for that time, that it prevented 300 million additional births. But I think, Amit, the big takeaway from the one-child policy is that you can't force people. And when you do that, it comes with great risk. So I think even now, society has changed. Even if, I think, costs weren't a factor, many people who live in cities, who have two jobs, who want to pursue careers, don't want to raise three children. For a majority of them, yes, it is cost. But for a, majority, for a huge number of people, it's also a question of choice. And I think that that's something that's very difficult for the Chinese authorities to change. They aren't 
going to be able to do that by just throwing financial inducements at this problem. Right. Uh, Anant, you've lived for many years in China and reported from there. Tell us, uh, you know, how did this one-child uh, policy work? You must know pe many people who are single children. I mean, how do they look at themselves and how does society in turn look at them? Right. So I think uh, it's it's quite interesting where for people who are born in the 80s in China, it's actually quite, it's so quite unusual for them to have siblings. And one of the things that really struck me when I first moved to China was, uh, and it's just a very, very small uh, kind of snapshot of how society has changed, where I would hear people refer to their brothers and sisters. And when I would look puzzled, they would tell me, no, no, they refer to their cousins as brothers and sisters, which to me was really uh, something that was quite powerful in the sense that you had this whole generation not knowing what it is to actually have a brother and sister. So they were your first or second cousins would be called your brothers and sisters, which which was something that I thought was quite profound. I did meet a lot of people who, uh, especially older generation, people born in their 50s. Uh, so people born in their 50s, interestingly, in China, not different from many in India, came from big families. They all had multiple siblings. Uh, but of course, if you were born in the 50s and you say you had your first child, when the one-child policy was enforced, say in the late 70s, nine, early 1980s. The thing that I think sometimes we don't often appreciate is in pre-reforms China, how much of your personal life, details of your personal life were controlled by the government because everyone was working for the government or state-owned enterprises. And your unit or danway determined everything in your life. When you went to get married, you would need them to sign off on it. When you had children, you needed them to sign off on it. And it wasn't a case where, uh, you know, you could just quit your job and find another job. You were assigned to your work unit and you had to deal with that and be in that work unit. And it determined so many aspects of your life. And I knew people where the pressure, for instance, to abort the second child came from their danway, from their work unit. And often it was pressure in the sense that, well, they knew if they didn't follow it, they wouldn't be able to work. They wouldn't be able to earn money. They wouldn't be able to earn any kind of income. Their second child would not be given papers or permits. They couldn't go to school. So it was an entire machinery that's been in place and changed, uh, you know, the entire way of a generation in China has grown up, uh, especially those in the 80s who grew up as only children. I think in the early two, from the 2000 onwards, you had a decade under, starting with Jiang Zemin in the, in the early 90s and then Hu Jintao Wen Jiabao in the early 2000s, which coincided with a period of moderate opening up in China which I think lasted until the Xi Jinping era, you did have more public debate about the cruelties of family planning. And when you had the birth of a, of a rights movement in China, where you had NGOs come up, at least within the confines of the Chinese state, uh, you had human rights lawyers come up for the first time, there was some amount of pushback to it. And I did interview uh, many years ago when I was in Beijing, a professor uh, called Yang Juju, who I wrote about for the Hindu. He was a professor at the time of constitutional law at China Youth University for Political Sciences in Beijing. And he actually sued the government, saying that it was unconstitutional for him to be faced with a huge fine that he was imposed on him when he had a second child. And he and him and his wife took a decision that they refused to have an abortion for their second child. They went ahead with it. But what happened to him was that at every level, he had a huge penalty of something like 40,000 US dollars, which for him was something like 10 years of his salary. 
uh, you had his university kind of demote him, uh, remove his uh, position of being a professor all because of that. And his case went to the courts. It was, I think it was telling that the courts accepted it, but ultimately they kind of threw out the case. And unfortunately for him, this was before the two-child policy came into being, so he still had to go through all of those punishments. So I think there was, I think with this current generation, greater awareness of rights, there is pushback to the cruelties of family planning. But having said that, Amit, I think looking at this generation, the difficulty for the Chinese government is it's not going to be so easy for them to press the button and get them to have more children when people are not unlike young people in India or Japan or anywhere else in the world. They have uh, different things that they want to do in the way they want to live their lives, not just necessarily having large families. Right. Uh, the fact that, um, you know, 65% of China's population lives in urban areas, you think that's also a factor in the way people approach families? And you, know, and you, you rightly point out it's, it's, it's an issue of choice and it's also an issue of bringing up children. I think that's not something which is very easy, as people know. No, absolutely. It's, uh, I think that, as you said, China's urbanizing at a, at a much higher speed than India. Um, and I think even uh, if you consider, I'd say, even the rural population in China, where even the nature of agriculture has changed, it's not where you need to have large families. Uh, and that's changed dramatically as well. And I think especially for Chinese who live in cities, especially if you live in a tier one city, I can't emphasize how much the stress of day-to-day -day living in a big city in China can be for people in terms of the costs, in terms of housing prices, in terms of, you know, just the cost of living there, uh, finding a school for your children. And you need, and in most urban families in China, you, you would have a situation where both parents are working. Uh, another difference is the labor force participation of women in China is far higher than it is in many places in Asia and definitely higher than it is in India. So when you have a situation where you have two parents working and in most cases in China, reliant on the grandparents to bring up your kids. And often, uh, given the housing pressures that people face in China, you aren't living in big apartments. Uh, if you're living in a small apartment uh, with the kind of uh, pressures that couples face, I think that's why it kind of showed, to put it bluntly, how tone deaf uh, the authorities were when they rolled out this three-child policy as if they were, you know, doing this big act of generosity or kindness to people. And the reaction from most people, certainly in urban China, was pretty much just a shrug of the shoulders, kind of saying, you expect us to be happy about it uh, when we are struggling to raise one, children, one child or two children. You expect us to be happy about it and thank you for allowing us to have a third. So I think that's how I would kind of characterize the reaction from at least people that I knew in urban China when I asked them about what they made of the announcement. Right. Anand, before I let you go, I, I just wanted to, you know, uh, um, ask you, uh, you know, this phenomena of a falling uh, a population or an aging population is common to other countries in East Asia. You mentioned China, uh, you mentioned Japan earlier, and there's also South Korea. So is this a kind of an East Asian phenomena, you would say, or this is more a modern phenomena in general, in your experience? I would say, I mean, I think you can argue that it is a modern phenomena in the sense that obviously Japan and South Korea were kind of ahead of the curve economically in terms of their per capita incomes, in terms of urbanization than China was. So China is in one sense catching up to what Japan and South Korea already went through. 
and they are aging societies. And I think that it's going to be a problem they all face. The other thing we should uh, talk about is in terms of the economic impact of this, is I think that obviously the first thing is going to be the huge pressure it's going to have, for instance, for the government on social security uh, in terms of how it's going to look after this aging, this huge aging segment of the population. And they are aware of that. Actually, when they announced the three-child policy in May 2021, that was kind of the headline sort of news that came out of it. But the, the Politburo meeting that announced this actually sort of, you know, reflected all the other challenges that they have to deal with because of this. They mentioned they were going to, uh, you know, change, uh, reform the social security system in China. They're thinking of other things they're doing, which is to raise the retirement age. So these were some of the things that are being discussed and how they're going to deal with this aging problem. But obviously, there's no way around it. Uh, and I think that there is also a hope that uh, the nature of work has changed, and especially the Chinese economy right now, the focus very much is about moving up the value chain, you're moving towards mechanization, you're moving towards smart manufacturing. So they think that at least as they go in that trend in the next 20, 30, 40 years, that that will mitigate uh, at least some impact of having a declining labor force. But at the same time, there's no getting away from the fact that it's going to be a huge burden and pressure on the social security system, which is something we're going to have to deal with. And I think a, a final thought, Amit, I think for India is something to reflect on is we've spoken so much about this demographic dividend that India enjoys, a huge contrast from China. So I think it also goes to show that when we are dealing currently with problems of unemployment in India, how crucial it is at a time when China will be dealing with these issues in the next 10, 15 years for India to get its act together, at least in terms of making the most of having this labor force uh, at a time when people will be looking to move out of China. Uh, but I think even the pandemic has shown us the last one or two years is that people won't move out unless you make it attractive for them to move out. It's not going to happen by default. And I think that's something for Indian policymakers to consider when they look at this next 10, 15 years as a window of opportunity to make the most of it and not to squander it. Well, as you rightly say, um, uh, I mean, India's demographic dividend is there. And one statistic that I was seeing according to UN figures, uh, the share of people in India aged above 60 uh, will reach 19% only in 2050. So obviously, there is a dividend uh, if, if the government were to take uh, advantage of it. Thank you so much, Anant, uh, for talking to the Hindus in Focus podcast. Thank you for having me, Amit. In Focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by the Hindu. We'll see you soon.